you got this. <laughs> uh, now my eyes are all watery. I love Brian's stories this morning, uh, stories of his dad. I don't have stories like that myself. Uh, I loved uh, this little clip, You Got This. I like the, va the video because it, uh, it catches the aspirations of every dad. I know not every dad is awesome, but dads want to be. It's uh, just human not to be. <laughs> if you took three biographers and you asked them to write the biography of one of the dads in that clip, and all three biographies were published, we'd get three different views of that father. Everybody has a different take on dad. Alan Jacobs is a distinguished professor of the humanities at Baylor University. He's a sweet-hearted follower of Jesus Christ and a publisher of many incredibly fine books. He wrote just today, today I'm hearing on the internet, this is what he's hearing, today I'm hearing on the internet that it's insensitive to celebrate Father's Day because such celebrations could bring pain to those whose fathers are dead or whose fathers were bad or who wish that they could be fathers but cannot. I heard the same arguments on Mother's Day. He continues basically to give open thanks for anything or to take visible and audible delight in anything is a mortal insult to countless people. So don't do it. Never praise aloud. Never give thanks publicly. Never honor or celebrate except silently in your heart. Confine all public discourse to what public discourse is really for complaining. Well, what he's ironically trying to say is, we complain too much. We ought to celebrate good in all its forms. And when we hear of good dads or dads who do good things, even though they may not be awesome dads or perfect dads, let's celebrate that. Too much in life today goes uncelebrated. Whenever two people meet, William James wrote, there are really six people present. There is each man as he sees himself, each man as the other person sees him, and each man as he really is. Now, using that formula, if one of the two people is a father, there is the father as he sees himself, the father as the other person sees him, and the father as he really is. And who knows the father as he really is? Even should God give a status report, a state of the father report, if the truth of the gospel be remembered, today's father and tomorrow's father can be radically different men. 
In other words, uh, who the father really is doesn't have to be who the father really will be. The Bible isn't called the book of dads. It's a story of redemption because there aren't any perfect dads. And you know what? There aren't any perfect moms. And I may not need to tell you this, but there aren't any perfect children either. In fact, I was reminded this week as I looked for good dads in the Bible that there's really only one perfect father. It reminded me of a a short piece by Ed Choi, How to Be an Awesome Dad, he wrote. And the heart of his advice was this, because he has a son, and he was writing about his experience with his son. And this was the heart of what he was advising. Treat your son, in other words, treat your son, treat your daughter, treat your children the way God has treated you. And then he wrote, boom. Jesus said that. That's something we can all appreciate. How has God treated you? Well, when I think of myself, he's patient. He always listens. He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. He's always ready to forgive. And does so completely. He's a great listener, always ready to hear my prayer. He gives good advice that comes out of his own heart and his own life, and so much more. These are the traits of an awesome God. They're the traits of an awesome dad, and they're the traits of an awesome anybody. They're the traits of God. They can be our traits. You don't have to be perfect to be awesome. Being an awesome dad is only possible because we have an awesome God. I agree with Joy. One good dad will not change the world. I wish it, I wish it were different. But you and I can be that awesome dad, the dad who gave his children the best dad of all, God the Father. In Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8, The psalmist is saying, you got this. It's talking to an entire generation, not just dads. But dads are prominent, and they're very much in view. Before I read verses 1 through 8 of Psalm 78, As we think about what the psalmist is saying here, it reminded me of a crack in the wall. I repaired it and painted it. This was when we were in South San Francisco. And uh, and then the crack would reappear, and I would repair it and paint it, and the crack would reappear. 
I kept thinking some, something was wrong with the wall, but it turned out the real problem was the foundation. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. Psalm 78. Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we've heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation and praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. And I want you to pay special attention to verses 5 through 8. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. The psalmist is saying, you got this. He's speaking to a nation. The psalmist, if you read the fine print, is Asaph. He was a contemporary of David. And in the psalm, he traces from Exodus from Egypt and the Exodus to the reign of David, the history of his people. It's a record of God's faithfulness and the record of the people. And verses 1 through 8 sets out his purpose. It's not just to dads, but let's face it, when a father turns to Jesus, followers of, and follows Jesus, almost always the family does too. And he is speaking to fathers here. In this psalm, Asaph, the psalmist, wants to turn things around. In effect, he's saying, if we think of like father, like son, Asaph is saying, I hope not. I want things to be different. And with refreshing honesty, Asaph says, our forefathers did it wrong, but you can do it differently. He's saying your kids and their kids and the kids of their kids can be influenced by you. And like Ed Choi, Asaph says, treat your children the way God treated you. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Here's the motivation. Here's the real incentive. And I think sometimes, because it's the Old Testament, and out of the New International Version, which I read this morning, we, we hear, and I did this too, I hear the word statutes, law, commanded. And I think of the Ten Commandments, but he's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about the law. He's talking about, as some translations give it, a testimony to Jacob or a rule and a law to Israel. That is, God wanted his people to do something. 
The people that he brought out of Egypt and brought through the wilderness and brought into the promised land, the, the, the people that he had done these wonderful things for, he wanted them, and this was the rule, this was the testimony, to tell the next generation what they had seen and known God do for them. And he's saying our forefathers didn't do that. And I'm telling you to do that. Let's break the cycle of silence. That's what he's saying. He's reminding them that God gave them a rule to follow, and that rule was to tell their kids what God had done for them so that they might tell their kids and their kids and their kids. Now, that's pretty powerful. There are a couple of things I want us to, to identify here that it implies that we might miss. The first thing is we got to give credit to God. Sometimes we're not good about vocalizing what God is doing in our daily lives, what we are experiencing in our lives as we walk with God. When we worship, we're praising him, but we have our own story to tell, as it were. And uh, when we sing these songs, they put that story into words for us. But sometimes we're not vocal about what God is doing in our lives. We're not grateful and acknowledging him. And a second profound thing is this truth. Your relationship with the living God can be witnessed by others, by our children, by those in our lives, by the next generation. And that is significant because the God who led his people out of the Exodus, the God who sent his son and raised him from the dead, the God of the empty tomb, that is a God that you and I know. How do we know that? Because somebody sung its praise what God had done. This Bible is a testimony to what God has done. And he's saying, continue this pattern. It makes a difference, not just for you, but for the next generation. Now, verse 7, look at what it can accomplish. And, and the first thing he says is, if you'll do this, if you'll just put into words what God is doing in your life, here's what will happen. He says that they, your kids, should place their confidence in God. That's one of the objectives. That's one of the accomplishments. That your kids should place their confidence in God, place their hope in God, place their faith in God. Three different words really talking about the same reality, a personal faith, a personal trust, a personal relationship with God. It's not just in some facts, it's hope and trust in God. 
I love my dad for many things. He instilled many good qualities in me. But dad didn't give me faith in God. He couldn't give me what he didn't have. My dad gave me a faith in him, but not a faith in God. And your faith in dad will at points be disappointed because all dads, like all moms, like all people, are human. A cardinal doctrine, teaching, that we often overlook is the sinfulness, the shortcomings, the failings, the flaws, that despite our best efforts, we really are human and in need of our God. But if in your dad you see a living faith in God, and above all, God's redemption, what you will face in your dad is the gospel, the gospel at work, not a finished product, but a product, a living gospel, a living faith that you can witness, that you can see. By the way, it's faith in God that's given me an appropriate faith in myself to step out in him, in his in trust in him to do things I could never do, like standing up here talking to you. The best way for our kids to place their hope in God is to see you put your trust and hope in God. Dads, you cannot teach what you do not know. You cannot lead where you do not go. And they, your kids, should place their confidence in God as they see you place your confidence in God. A second thing we see here in verse uh, 7, that they, your kids, should neglect not, forget not, it says, but neglect not the works of God. Shelley and I have the story of God's works from the Bible, the exodus and the empty tomb, but we also have our own story of God's works to tell, and tell them we do, and not just to each other. God is at work in our lives every day. It's a part of our relationship. It's a part of our joy, and we share it with our kids. Teach your kids to expect great things from God. Instruct them, but let them see you trusting God, growing and changing, learning anew the beauties of God. Let them see God's works in your life. Let them see the outgrowth of the truths of following Jesus Christ and the gospel. Psalm 77, 12 says, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Sometimes you are the only Bible that people will read. That is never more true of our children as they look at us as their parents. Show you are a learner. The moment we stop learning, we stop leading. And if you are married and have kids, you are a leader. 
Let God lead you and let God turn failures into a new foundation for great success. A third thing is that they should seek or keep his commandments. The word keep, obey, we just bristle at the word obey in this day and age. But I love the notion of keeping, observing, being mindful of, having them in your life. Because too often we think of laws and commands and we don't think of the very heart of God, the guidance of God, the wisdom of God, that he wants to spare us from our own stupidity and foolishness. D.L. Moody wrote, the preaching that this world needs most is the sermons in shoes that are walking with Jesus Christ. I look a lot like my dad, eerily so. You wouldn't know that because uh, um, both my parents are are deceased, but it's the constant comment of people who knew my dad. You look so much like your dad. The principal difference between my dad and me, as much as we look alike, is that my heart is in the hands of God. In, in two really significant ways, First of all, I apologize and admit when I'm wrong. You might have to slap me twice, but I will. In fact, the the closer I walk with Christ, the more I I find I, I need to be really frank about those things. I mean, who are we kidding? Nobody's perfect. But what really is powerful and what really does lead and what really does point to Christ and admit that there's somebody bigger than me that can make me admit I'm wrong is the gospel, is the Lord in your life. My dad didn't have that. He never said he was sorry. Not once. A second thing is that I seek God's counsel and to live according to his commands. I control life. I, you know, I want to control life. Um, but being controlled by Jesus is much more important, and it's much more Christ-like. I really think it's uh, important for us to show that we don't forget or neglect the commands. And and even when we have to correct ourselves, if others see that we, we trust him like that, how powerful is that model? How, how real is that example? In 1999, my daughter and I went to via Venture Ministries to a Father-Daughter Week in British Columbia. And it is one of the most special times 
of my life. The, the leader of the conference and of the time together would teach every evening, every morning, but also every evening out of the Word. And we spent lots of time together. I mean, uh, we did all kinds of things. And Susanna and I, uh, you better, you know her better as Susie. I'm the only one, I think, in the family that calls her Susanna. But I picked that name, so I'm sticking with it because I love it. There's a heroine behind it. But we played uh, roller hockey together, went horseback riding, canoeing. Uh, we climbed. We did technical climbing. We did uh, whitewater rafting. We did all these things together because they were trying to create an experience where a child and the parent, in this case the daughter and the father, could, could spend time together and, and see what was going on, see Christ in the parent's life. Because as he taught on one evening, he says, if you look at the pattern of the way societies have gone, uh, there was an agrarian culture in which parents and, and kids worked side by side. They lived together in a, in a more immediate and constant way so that the kids could actually see in their parents them solving, problem solving, facing challenges in faith. But then with the Industrial Revolution, then you know, families go off to the factory, they go off to the office, the kids go off to school where they're trained and educated with others, and they... they most of their lives then are spent apart and the kids don't get to see the works of God in the hearts of their parents. And this was seeking to rectify that. This is speaking to that, that issue, that we have to be deliberate and conscientious despite the the challenges that we face, yes, we can correct, we could, you know, homeschool and do all kinds of things to better the situation that we have. But most of all, we have to be deliberate about letting our kids and letting the next generation know the God that we know, that we love, and treating our kids as he, in Jesus Christ, has treated us. We equip by example, lead by living it, disciple by doing, mentor by modeling. I can think of nothing more frustrating than to follow Jesus without Jesus. We have to show Jesus. I didn't want to be a missionary. I was afraid when I first became a Christian and started following Jesus that if I really sold out and gave him all of me that I would end up in a place I didn't want to be as a missionary. I don't know how I had that in my head, but maybe you've been through something similar. Missionaries are some people that I really admire, and I wouldn't mind going and being a missionary if that's what God called me to now. But drawing on that crazy, silly thought, I just wanted to say that we may be closer to the mission field than we think. In fact, you may be so close that you are the missionary right where you're at. And God is saying to you this morning, you got this. Because he's all you need. 
And just like those dads, they couldn't say you got this if there wasn't a history. Just as that girl looked over to the empty chair, she knew he was saying, you got this. Because dads, in a way, always have their hand on our shoulder and their guidance in our ear. And that could never be more true than our relationship with God, our Father, our Heavenly Father. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. I hope you have a wonderful Father's Day. Even remembering Father, perhaps like I do, because I do have a lot of wonderful things to think about my Father. So I don't want to leave you with the impression I don't love my dad. I wish I could see him today. Heavenly Father, thank you for being such a loving Father, the perfect Father for inspiring dads of your making to be like you. And that is the desire of our heart. And Father, we pray for uh, families across this room this morning that today you would bless them with your joy and celebrate the good and the grace that we enjoy in your name through Jesus Christ. We praise and thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. God bless you.